Are you looking for something fun to do with the kids at home that will keep them learning? The Washington Wizards Kids Club, presented by Giant, has really cool, free, printable activities available online at dcfamily.com slash kidsclub. Coloring books, math timetables, writing worksheets, word searches, and so much more are up now for you and your family to enjoy. Keep the kids entertained by checking it out now at dcfamily.com slash kidsclub. What's up, Wizards fans? Welcome to another episode of the Off the Bench podcast presented by the Alibaba Group. I'm your host, Jackson Filio. A reminder that Off the Bench is one of three podcasts on the Wizards Podcast Network, which also includes Full Court Press, hosted by the Wizards Radio Party of Dave Johnson, Glenn Consor, and Brian Alban, and the Wizards Global Podcast, hosted by Zach Akuma. All podcasts on the Wizards Podcast Network are available wherever you get your podcasts and are featured on Wizards Radio 24-7 and the Wizards app. You can follow the Wizards Podcast Network on Twitter, at WashWizardsPN, and please subscribe, download, rate, and review wherever you listen. On today's episode of Off the Bench, I'm joined by Chris Gehring of WashingtonWizards.com, and we have Michael Lee, senior writer at The Athletic, formerly of Yahoo Sports and The Washington Post, talking about the last dance, how Jordan's mindset would fit in 2020, and Basketball County in the Water, the upcoming documentary about Prince George's County, Maryland, as a hotbed for basketball talent. Michael, thank you for joining us. We're recording this after the airing of episode seven and eight of The Last Dance, which I think we can all agree was a, a really incredible pair of episodes, even to the standard of uh, what they've given us so far. And it's been awesome throughout. I think seven was honestly one of the most entertaining, probably my favorite so far. I mean, it covered the death of his father, retirement, number one, baseball, um, his return, Space Jam. It's so many of his most entertaining, interesting moments of what we saw last night what do you think was the most memorable I was really touched by this um mention of his father you know really get into that angle because I think that the first six episodes really focus on Jordan as a basketball player and I felt seven really focused on him as a human and just the, the bond that he had with his dad and the friendship that they had um you know and there was so much speculation around that time you know after his father passed and he did get a lot of blame. People did speculate that gambling was at the root of his father's death. They really didn't get to the bottom of that in, in this in this documentary. I know that for time purposes, it probably could have just had a whole documentary just on that. But they did touch on, you know, have Michael sort of expressed, you know, the closest that he felt. And it was probably one of the few times that you saw him in, in a bit of a vulnerable moment, you know, during this doc, because it sort of comes across as just being, you know, all hell King Michael. <laughs> um, but there were, you know, situations where, you know, he, he had to kind of, just, you know, show deference and respect for the people that he really cares about. Speaking of that first retirement, just the momentous nature of something like that. And, you know, in the documentary, you see them planting the seeds and explaining how that came to be. But in that time, in that moment, we didn't, you know, it wasn't the same day-to-day coverage that we have now and then. People didn't see those puzzle pieces lining up. It was, it was a curveball to so many people. What do you remember about the, the shocking nature of, of that news breaking, I guess? In, yeah, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just one thing I, I can say. I, I was fortunate that I was alive and, you know, really, comp, uh, you know, very conscious of what was happening around me at that time, at that age. And when Jordan retired, you know, it was such a devastating, you know, uh, decision because he had just reached the top of the game. He first got to hit a three-peat. And, you know, the fact that he was stepping away, it was just like, how is the league ever going to recover? And it seemed like for the next decade or so, there was this big hurt, hunt, you know, to find the next MJ because 
he had done so much to elevate the game. He had done so much to raise it, um, the popularity of it, you know, from the sneakers, from the cool aspect, just him being a, a brand spokesman for a lot of uh, companies. He was such a huge figure. And you, I'm, I'll say you, sometimes I say, you know, you had to be there. You really had to be there to, to really experience what that meant. Because everything that Jordan did to that era, it was huge. I mean, when he came back, you know, 18 months later and sent out the facts, that was huge. And when he retired again in 99, you know, after the, uh, during the lockout, that was huge. I mean, all of these things that when Michael, you know, decided to play again and change his number uh, from 45 to 23 and all these other things, just about everything he did, there was some level of controversy or, um, you know, speculation about it. A lot of Oliver Stone conspiracy theories about everything he did um, because he was such a huge player. You mentioned that there wasn't social media and there wasn't, you know, a lot of things, but there were enough things that kept everybody focused on the same things. You know, there weren't enough, as many distractions. So whenever a star of Michael's magnitude did something, it shook the whole world because it really did. I mean, you talk about, think about just the albums that came out in the 80s and 90s. You know, they sold, what, 30 million copies because everybody was focused on that one thing. Nowadays, it's hard to really break through to the scale that Michael did. And he was the star of stars. And the one thing I, I always um, marvel at was that even then, in 1993, from Jordan, I mean, from Larry Bird to Matty Johnson on down, he retired after nine seasons, and people were saying then, this is the best guy that we've ever seen play the game. So he hadn't even come back and won the next second three-peat. So, you know, a lot of debates are going on now about who's the best, but he had established it with just three rings. <laughs> so for him to walk away, it was just incredible. And I think people were so confused that they just came up with everything they could to try to figure out whether it's David Stern was involved or whatever. Uh, and just to try to make it make sense because nobody walked away at the top the way he did. I think for some of us, well, for a lot of us, a lot of people our age that are watching this documentary, we've talked about it before on the podcast about how we all know about Jordan's greatness. People our age especially know about his brand. We we see it everywhere. We see current players that that are on the floor wearing his brand still. It's still everywhere around the game. Obviously, he's uh, the owner of the Hornets as well. but to see, I think there are so many people that didn't realize, maybe maybe didn't even realize that he retired. Maybe didn't even realize that between those three peats was a real space of time where the NBA did not have him. And he had, and they had all these seismic events. Do you think that this is doing a good job of kind of capturing how momentous each of those little things were? And when you get to have this extensive commentary from him, does it shed a different light on what you experienced in real time when you were just, you were, you were observing the game? Well, one thing that this whole documentary is, is going and actually seeing uh, Mike, you know, explain the situation is I realized why he's stepped away and why the spotlight is not something that he really is trying to embrace right now. Um, you know, the, the other previous episodes really just built up to this moment where he was just exhausted and had to step away. And as a kid, you know, I was, I mean, I was in high school at that time, so I didn't quite comprehend like what was so bad? I mean, the commercials were telling us to be like Mike. How could it be stressful if you're the king of the world? You're doing Michael Jackson videos, like you're <laughs> you're about to you know do movies and everything. So it seemed like a pretty good life. Um, but I think that now that I'm an adult and I sort of understand some of the pressures that he dealt with and from covering the league uh, for almost almost 20 years now, I can kind of see you know what 
the weight of carrying a league is. You know, people talk about how, you know, you know, players might leave and then the team falls apart. Well, when Michael left, the league crumpled because there was, like I said, there was this, this, this hunt and this search. And one thing is, you know, I've talked to a lot of people. I did a story a couple, about a couple months ago about when Jordan came back in 95. And I talked to a lot of people. And one thing that, that stood out to me, I didn't really write about it, was for a guy to not play baseball for 15 years or so, to come back and hit 200, which is not easy, in the double-A level, uh, you know, that was pretty phenomenal. And I know a lot of people say, well, Michael just wasn't that good at baseball. One, you don't understand how hard baseball is. Two, you don't understand how hard it is to get your body, which has been trained to play basketball and shoot jumpers, to go around and swing at a bat. Three, to be 6'6", to get in there and face guys who are throwing 80-mile-an-hour, 90-mile-an-hour heaters at you. Like, that's incredible. And I think, you know, it it just sort of speaks to his gifts as an athlete. And uh, so I think sometimes we simplify what Michael did and don't really appreciate the magnitude of what he was able to accomplish because to do that at the prime of his career, at the top of the game, I mean, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine like just anybody at the top of their sport after winning three championships saying, you know what, I'm going to play his baseball. <laughs> I mean, it sounds <laughs> ridiculous now. Imagine it then, you know, almost 20 years ago. And having this, having this timeline put together, right. I mean, like having this timeline put together, and how quick that baseball transition was for him was enlightening for me because I knew he did it. I knew he went and played baseball. And I have, had of course, heard like the, yeah, well, he wasn't good. Like he wasn't like the Bo Jackson. He wasn't like the Deion Sanders who went and they played in the big leagues. So like it doesn't count. And, I, and I'm looking at it like, well, wait a second, though. Like he if he would have kept going, like we know and we, we got some really good insight. And that's where I want to go next about his work ethic, his leadership, his just relentless drive if we we know that about him and we know if he would have had a couple more years everybody in the documentary said it it would have been very very interesting to see where he might have taken the baseball thing but his seeing him nearly move to tears when he talked about his drive and his like if you're not with me on this journey then then get out um that was a powerful thing to me and i we knew what what were your thoughts about his just um I would say one of a kind drive to be great at whatever he puts his mind to yeah I don't think there's ever been anyone as maniacal about it like he was just obsessed and he didn't want anyone to have an edge over him and anything I think the one thing that stands out from this whole documentary is the hatred that he still has for the Detroit Pistons you know because he was able he never beat Larry Bird but he knew that you know, by the end, he showed him what he could do because he's never had a team that was good enough. And he got magic, you know. But Isaiah still is 3-1 against him. And you know that that's something that eats at him every day, even to this day, even though he's won on, gone on to win six championships. Those Pistons teams still bring out so much hatred in him because he wasn't able to completely dominate them. And they, they dominated him in 91. But the three years prior to that, he took some – He took, it was humiliating for him. And so I think that's that's the one thing that stood out. But also, think about this. When they lost to the Orlando Magic in 95, he had played 27 games, 17 regular season, 10 playoff games, and he had just finished playing baseball. Like, he just walked up from baseball. So he was in a baseball body, and he still was dropping 55 on the Knicks. He still had, I think, a couple of 39-point games or whatever in that Orlando series. 
when that series was over, he was fuming. And I spoke to his trainer, Tim Grover, and he was like, you know, he was, he sat there with him after the game and they were there for hours. And Jordan was just talking about everything and just really plotting his next moves. And um, Tim Grover, his trainer was like, you know, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. I mean, I'll, I'll see you, I'll see you soon. Like just expecting him to just say, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get together in a couple of days. He's like, no, I'll see you tomorrow. And when he walked out, it was like past midnight and it hit Grover. You know what? Tomorrow means today. This guy is ready to go right back in the gym and just take command of the league. And he came back and they went on a three-peat right after that. They won 72 games the very next season. So you want to talk about the rage and the passion in this guy. He was not going to let anyone get the upper hand. But the fact that people were clowning him for wearing 45, Nick Anderson and all stuff, he was not going to let that slide. And he was going to go out and let everybody know that he was the best. And, and also, when you talk about his leadership, think about it this way. When Jordan was gone that year, the Bulls went 55 and 27. Pippen was in the MVP conversation. But, you know, and a lot of people don't really talk about this, but they talk about the documentary. You know, Pippen sat out, you know, so Tony Kukoc to take that game when it shot. And it really fractured the Bulls. It broke them in a lot of ways. They wound up losing that series. They didn't win that series to the Knicks. They lost that series. The very next year, they were just a 500 team without Michael. They were just a 500 team. He came back for those 17 games, and he wasn't, you know, back in basketball shape. They went 13-4. and four. Like, Michael elevated them to a fifth seed, which wasn't that great, but he elevated them right away. And then they immediately became a dominant organization. And that's from his will. So you can say what you want about his drive, you know, how he, you know, maybe was mean to his teammates or belittled them or that was his way of trying to get them to that next level. And that's the only way he knew how to motivate them. And we all are different. We all are judging things from a 2020 mentality and just how about to go about life. You got to understand for this guy, right, at this stage in his life, his career, basketball was everything to him. Winning was everything to him. And if that meant he had to break, break some uh, hearts and hurt some feelings along the way, then that meant you weren't meant to be in it with him anyway. So I, I, I admire him because that's, that was him. That's the way he went about going about doing it. And he was true to himself and it was effective. And you can see the results in the six rings. Not everybody has to lead that way. That worked for him and his teammates, like, like he said, you know, I never would do anything that I, I would never ask my teammate to do something that I wouldn't, wasn't willing to do. And I think that's why his teammates had to respect him in the end. That uh, you actually just said it right there at the end. Uh, that was one of my favorite lines of the entire episode. You know, we know him as this this cutthroat killer that will do anything it takes. That will push and shove and fight teammates and whatnot. But he didn't do, or he didn't ask his teammates to do anything. He didn't do. It was, and that is leadership in, in its purest form, which I thought was so interesting. And last night was really opening the book on the way he led and how his teammates reacted. They plugged a ton of different stories, not just Steve Kerr, but. Scotty Burrell and, and so many others. Does does that approach work today? Is is that something that can be applied? Maybe not in the same way, but even like little essences of it. Like, th does that work in in twenty twenty? Well, I don't know if there's a player that's of Jordan's magnitude who can get away with it to that extent. You know, um, I mean, there are a lot of great players, um, but there aren't anybody. There isn't anybody who's as big you know, in, in terms of who they are and their standing in the game, that they can even attempt to do this. Because Jordan did it from, you know, he, he had success, you know, or he was craving it, but then when he got it, he was on top. I mean, the separation between the best player in the game when he was playing, the second best player, 
was always greater than it's ever been, you know? And that, I mean, that, that, and, that, and I think for him to be that way and to be such a, you know, um, you know, such a, you know, really dry, you know, a forceful guy like that, um, I think that that was something that only he could get away with. So um, right now there is no player of his stature. I mean, LeBron is obviously a great player, but that's not his personality. So I can't imagine him trying to lead in a way that's not natural to him. And then there's nobody else who can really go about, you know, trying to lead in that manner. Um, just like I said, because in the end, you know, you try Jordan, you know, you try to push back at him, you know he's going to win no matter what. So I, I, just, I just don't see it happening, working, because there's no one else of that stature right now in the game. Yeah, I think when you look at the things that, that fueled him and got him to that point, he heard everything. You could tell. And there's been so many – uh, shots and scenes from this documentary where, um, you know, he's in the locker room before or after a game and he's sitting with the security guards that he's always palling around with. And they're watching not just sports center, but they're watching Bulls coverage. They're watching people talk about his team and him and all the different things that he goes. And then last night um, there's a shot of him. I'm assuming it was at some shoot around or a practice or something like that. He's sitting on the bench reading the paper and not just the yeah. paper, but a story about the Bulls and something that was going wrong at that time. Um, this is obviously taking us back to the, this pre-social media area and things were, were different then. Was that unique in, in, in those times, even into like the early 2000s and whatnot, that guys were that plugged in? Is that, was that different? Was that, do you think a place where he got his motivation? What, what did you see from him on that front? Well, I thought it was the, the best part was the LeBradford Smith story, you know, where he just made up his own, you know, situation where like he said that, the Bradford Smith, you know, got 37 points and then was saying, good game, Mike, afterward. And it never happened. And he told the story and people ran with it and believed it. And he went out and had 36 in the next, in the first half of the very next game. It just shows you that even if there was nothing written or there was nothing said, he was going to find something to motivate himself at all times. And if you gave him just a crumb of, mo of something, he was going to, you know, attack. And I, and I was fortunate enough to be, at Jordan's Hall of Fame speech in 2009. And it was like the first time he really unmasked himself, you know, because we had always had this image of Michael as being this, you know, great guy and, you know, and just, you know, be like Mike and everything. But the, um, the Hall of Fame speech, he came off as really petty. And he mentioned all the people who had motivated him. And I think what's really still my people was like Dean Smith, who's like the nicest human being to like probably ever coach basketball. He put Dean Smith on blast for not putting him on the cover of Sports Illustrated, you know, his freshman year. And he used that as motivation because he wanted to prove to Dean Smith <laughs> that, you know, he got it wrong. And, you know, and I think that he always he said during that speech that all these things just just were a little, you know, you know added, added fire, added, added fuel to the fire. So it didn't take much because the fire was always raging. I mean, this was this was a really super competitive guy. And it went back to just growing up in that house with his brother Larry, who was somebody he really admired and wanted to to always be better than. And so he's had this drive for his entire life. And it's just, I don't know if there's been anybody who's been that petty. And I think if he was, you know, now in the social media age, he would probably be all over Twitter, <laughs> checking his mentions every second to see who said what. And he would just try to just make a list and just keep it all up so he could just come out and he'd probably be like Kevin Durant almost and just, just start blasting people. Just like, yeah, what'd you think about that 55 I, I dropped on your team now? Shut up, you know? <laughs> and I think he would be that kind of guy. 
uh, on Twitter or something because, uh, you know, he just wouldn't let anything slide or let anyone feel for the slightest second that they had the upper hand. And I, I was, uh, uh, I talked to BJ Armstrong. He mentioned a story about how he had, uh, you know, got the hint that Michael might be thinking about coming back. And so they had breakfast one day and uh, he had invited <clears throat> BJ or BJ had invited him over to the practice facility. And uh, he said, you know, and he was dressed up for practice and Michael was in the street clothes, you know, and he said that, um, he said that when they were headed over there, BJ was like, man, Mike, this is the first time I can probably say that I can, I can beat you one-on-one. And Michael was like, no, you will never beat me one-on-one. And so they went to the practice facility. Michael gets in the gym and BJ thinks he's just going to shake hands and say hello, everybody. Michael goes straight to get a ball and in his loafers says, let's go. And he gets up in a full sweat and plays BJ one-on-one in the gym <laughs> just to prove that he was better than BJ, even though he hadn't played basketball in 15, 16 months. So he beat BJ <laughs> in street clothes while BJ's in his practice clothes because the mere mention of him, even the, even the mere thought that BJ had that he could beat him in the street clothes or whatever, he had to crush that in that moment. And that just says everything about Michael. Like, you can't, he wasn't gonna let anything slide for one second. Yeah. And I think the funniest part about the LeBradford Smith story is that he goes to all these lengths to create this narrative that inspired him. And it wasn't even like this outlandish thing that he said that LeBradford said to him. It was good exactly. game. It wasn't, I'm way better than you, Mike, or you're losing it, Mike, or you don't have it anymore. It was good game. And like, <laughs> he goes to all these things to fabricate the story, and that's what he picks. It's so funny. Yeah. Poor LeBradford. Yeah, and he mentioned like George Carl in '96 finals, how like they were out eating, and George Carl didn't say anything to him. Well, you know what? If George Carl walked up to him and said, "Hey, Mike, how's it going?" He'd be like, "Oh, can you believe you're trying to play this North Carolina card on me now? <laughs> like we in the finals, dude. We competing. I don't need to be your friend right now." He would have used that as motivation. He would have found anything as a source of motivation. I think that's what drove him to be so great. And, uh, you know, and and I think that that's that's what wore him down. I mean, I think inevitably that's why it was so hard. To, to play at that level for so long because it's draining. I mean, three-peating is hard. You know, there's a reason why the, the Warriors weren't even able to do it, you know, even though they had all that talent and injuries obviously got to them too. But I think that, you know, keeping that edge and, and really just finding those things that motivate you and push you and then just keep going, 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 eventually it's going to wear and, and take a toll. And I think that's that's what you that's what we've seen from this, this uh, documentary, and especially with The Last Dance, is that trying to do it three years in a row again and just stay on that mountaintop, it just takes everything out of you. So, I mean, the standard has been set pretty high now. The Last Dance is going to wrap up next weekend. Uh, but <laughs> it, we are lucky enough that that's actually not not the end of, of the uh, basketball documentary content that we have coming our way. Um, debuting this Friday is going to be Basketball County in the Water. Um, which I know you know a ton about. It is um, on Showtime, and it's going to be about uh, the hotbed that that is Prince George's County and the DMV area. And uh, you know, Wizards fans know a ton about that. Um, so many people from that area grow up Wizards fans and um, are, are just aware of of what a unique place this is from a basketball perspective. And when you talk about all the different meccas that there are we'll, we'll say plural because so many of these places call themselves the mecca but whether it's pg county dmv um you know new york and la all these places um we're gonna we're gonna peel back yeah. a little bit on on the dc one what 
what uh what are your memories of this area and you, you spent a lot of time covering the region and being around the wizards and the high schools and the colleges in the area um what do you think on that front it's just such a true a truly unique place because pg county is not very big but you know per capita you know the fact that it's been able to just pump up first round picks you know uh left and right you know for for years i mean uh, from Kevin Durant to Michael Beasley, you know, going number two, to Markel Fultz going number one, Victor Oladipo going number two. You could just go on and on. And there's just been so many great guys, Jared Jack, and then even going, you know, uh, back to like a guy like Lynn Bias, you know, um, you know, who unfortunately wasn't able to to uh, have an NBA career because of what happened on draft night with the, with the overdose. But I just feel like there's something unique about it and uh, this documentary really goes into the history of it and just what things kind of led to basketball sort of taking off in the DC area uh, from one of the original, uh, from someone who learned from James Naismith coming to DC and using it as a means to, to uh, help, you know, uh, people in the, in the community, you know, you know, be healthy and work out, you know, basketball became that outlet. Um, and it started, you know, from a guy who had direct ties to James Naismith. And then, uh, and it goes to the history of how PG County and what led to black people moving to PG County uh, from the riots, from the Martin Luther King thing. So uh, it's just a really complete documentary. And it's not just saying, oh, look, these guys play basketball and they're good. Uh, it really tries to paint the entire picture. And um, but when you see the volume of names that come out of there, uh, it's, it's just really staggering because you look at LA. LA is probably the, the mecca right now of basketball players in the NBA because it has more players from that set city or in the league than anybody else. But look at the size of Los Angeles. Los Angeles pretty much takes up all of Southern California, while PG County is just this really small, uh, you know, part of the part of Maryland, um, which isn't that big of a state to begin with. Um, but I just think that basketball is just within the people here. Um, PG County is unique in that there are a lot of parks, a lot of um, gyms a lot of uh, recreation senators where a lot a lot of players have gone you know uh, obviously Kevin Durant played at Seaflet um you know that's 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 where he you know developed his love for the game um but then you had you go from there it wasn't really mentioned Berry Farm which has sort of been a place where a lot of players from the DMV really had to go out outdoor court people had to really go out and show what they're made of and I think those type of things are just what separates you know PG County more than any other place it's just it's really just a fluky thing that this one part of the country, because, you know, it's not DC, you know, it's not Virginia. This is Prince George's County. And all these guys are coming from this one place. And, uh, and I, I think the documentary does a good job of trying to paint the entire picture. And Michael, one last thing, you have a piece coming out, correct? On the, on the, um, on the PG County documentary, right? Yeah, this later this week there'll be a, a piece on uh, basketball country, and uh, so I'm, I'm just kind of telling the whole story how it all came together, uh, not giving away too much about what's in there, but uh, just Perfect. you know talking to guys from uh, PG County basketball players that that played a role in, in getting this out to uh, to the people. So I hope everybody reads it and enjoys it. Awesome, yeah. we'll keep an eye out for it for sure. Absolutely, yeah, I think we're all looking forward to that, and it will be a good continuation of basketball stories and content as we move forward in this uh this summer without basketball but um <laughs> michael thank you so much for the time this was this was great i know you're a very unique and educated voice on on this topic so it's been it's been fun to chop it up with you a little bit for sure thanks for inviting me and uh, 
hope you guys are staying safe and uh and in trying to make the best of not the best situation <laughs> for sure Absolutely. thanks so much yeah.